Well, last week we looked at chapter 1, which was kind of the past. It was talking about Jesus, who he was. And then in chapter 2 and 3, it's kind of the present. We talked about how that church, the, the letter of Revelation written by John, is deal, dealt with past, present, future. Very futuristic book. And in that, um, there's a lot of prophetic things. In that, there's a lot of imagery. In that, there's a lot of symbolism. And sometimes it's hard to interpret because of those things. I want to say up front, some of you may not even agree, as hard as this is to believe, with everything I'm going to say. You may take a different position on some of the things. And I say that because there is room, actually, for differing opinions on how to interpret some of the things in Scripture. And we need to give grace to others who disagree with us but I encourage you, whatever your opinion is, to know why you believe it. Not just because somebody said it. Because the reality is, even though we know there's going to be differing opinions, even though we know theologians much more brilliant than most of us, we know that there's many students of the Bible have looked at the same scriptures and come to different conclusions. As much as that is true, how many of you know there's really only one right answer? We just may not have, been, have, it, we may not have had it revealed to us yet. So, having said that, we're going to get into looking at the seven letters to the seven churches that, the Paul, that John has addressed this letter to. Um, I put up a map. I'm having him put up a map. And on this map is the seven churches that are being talked about. Are they the only churches that were established at this time? Absolutely not. There were many other churches already established. Why he chose these seven churches, we're not sure. Um, As I said last week, the number seven seems to be very significant in the scripture. It's used over and over and over. And one of the things it seems to mean and represent is a completeness or a wholeness or a perfection. You know, the the seven days of of creation, it was completed. It was very good. And if you go through scripture, you'll see seven show up so many times. In the book of Revelation, it's going to show up over and over and over. So I believe there is an aspect of completeness. So I believe that one of the possibilities of the seven churches is they give us a picture of the whole church. Even though they're written to specific churches, addressing specific issues, and promising specific rewards. On this map, you also see the island of Patmos. That's where John was uh, put by the government of the day, by the Roman government. He was exiled there. That's where he was at when he wrote this letter to these seven churches. The seven churches are pretty well, that's modern-day Turkey, if you would look at a map. That's where that is located today. Not all those cities exist today. uh, Some of them exist under a different name. Some have changed dramatically. Some of them were major economic areas. They were on key travel routes. Some of them were very, very popular and famous for their idol worship, their idolatry, uh, big big, uh, elaborate uh, churches or synagogues or temples, whichever you want to call it, (coughs) to false gods. So there was a lot of different things in these cities that had a lot of, they have a lot of different uh, characteristics. Uh, It's approximately 130 miles from the Laodicea on the south all the way up to Pergamum on the north. So it's not a very, very big area. Um, Actually, from uh, Philadelphia to Ephesus, probably less than 75, 80 miles. So it's a pretty condensed area. 
But that's where the churches are. Now, there are a number of different ideas about the churches. For example, on this next slide, some people see these seven churches representing seven different eras in church history. And they very well could. Again, there's a lot of these things that aren't clearly pointed out to us in Scripture. But if you look at it, for example, Ephesus is considered a picture of the apostolic church, that first century church, the church getting going from 30, 35 A.D. on up to about 100 A.D. Then the second church is Smyrna. And this was the church of the second and third century when there was terrible persecution and many, many people were martyred for the church, the era of martyrdom in the church. The third church, Pergamum, is to represent the state church beginning with Constantine, way back in history, when Constantine declared Christianity is the religion, even though it didn't look a whole lot like real Christianity most of the time. The fourth church, Thyatira. This is when the the church was firmly established, but it became a church and a state. Some of you that know your history, the primary example is the Vatican, the Roman Catholic Church. And that existed as that, according to these people that believe this, now we're looking at a time frame from about 590 A.D. up till 1517. Many, many years that was considered the, the church. And then we go to Sardis. And this picture is the Church of the Reformation. The Reformation, primarily people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others. A Reformation, kind of a breaking away from the state church concept. You know, salvation was by faith and not by works. And the Church of, of Sardis uh, was up till about 1730. And then the Church of Philadelphia. This was, is, according to these people, is what they called the missionary church era. This is when missions really were launched into the world. Um, William Carey, kind of known as the father of early missionary work, kind of launched this era in church history. And this went right up until about 1900. And then we get to what they would call today the Church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Um, If you've read ahead, the church that God says, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. And we are, according to this way of looking at these churches, we are living currently in that era, and it will not end until Jesus comes back. So what they actually represent, what they actually mean, um, not absolutely certain. But personally, All of those things could be representative of those churches. Personally, for me, in trying to make application of a lot of what comes, I I like looking at it in terms of what we read about in each one of those churches kind of are a picture of the total of what's going on in churches and probably throughout history at different times, different emphasis. Um, When you read the letters, and I'm not going to read about all the churches probably today, probably won't even get that far. So we probably won't even get to verse 1 of chapter 2. How's that? I'm sure that you all read it because you know it was coming. If not, I would encourage you to read it because it's going to continue to come probably next week. I'm not sure how far we'll even get today. But there's some things that we need to look at. First of all, the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia, when you read the letters, you're going to find out it's like God is looking at his churches and he's doing a spiritual inventory. 
And it's kind of like we're going to give you a write-up of what things look like in your church. Two of the churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, are the only two churches of these seven that received only a commendation. In other words, these are the only two churches where you don't read words like, but I've got this against you. They're the only two. Then we see four churches, Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. They receive a commendation. Jesus says, or God says, you know, this is good. This is good. This is good. This is good. And then he comes to that three-letter word you hate to read. But. But. And then he gives them a rebuke. So those four churches receive both. And there's one church, Laodicea. The Laodicean church. What people believe is the church of today. He gives only a reprimand. No commendation whatsoever. So some things we can learn from these seven letters as you go into them and start reading them, and we'll look at them more specifically, but I want to just speak in general sense as if you read the letters or you're going to read the letters to these churches. These are some things that I think are undeniable truths. And as, as I look at it from my perspective saying, you know, I think this may be a picture of the whole church. These are things that really catch my eye. For example, you're going to read these two words over and over. I know. I know. We get this clear picture that the God that we serve knows everything. He knows what's going on in our hearts. He knows what's going on in our minds. Our thoughts and attitudes of the heart. To the church in Thyatira in verse 23 of chapter 2, he says, I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. I am he. God knows what's going on in his church. He cares about what's going on in his church. He's aware of what's going on in his church all the time. He sees the good and he sees the bad. He sees the evil. And you're going to see there's only one cure, and it's called repentance. Repentance as we look through these. We will see God definitely punishes and disciplines evil, and he rewards good. In Revelations 2, verse 23, it also says, I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. He is going to give according to your deeds. Now, these letters are written to specific churches about specific issues, and there are specific rewards promised. But I believe as we go through this, from my perspective, I believe these are things we all need to pay attention to because I think they can apply to the church, and in many, many cases, they can apply directly to us as individual members of Christ's church. And here he says, I will give to each one according to your deeds. Verse 11 of chapter 3 to the church in Philadelphia, he says these words, Be careful, lest someone takes your crown, takes your reward. We need to be careful. One of the things we'll see over and over as we go through this is, as I mentioned, repentance is required to overcome God's reprimands. Now remember, these are written to the churches. These are written in a general sense to believers, although we know that there's probably unbelievers in every single church. But it's written to believers. So these reprimands are disciplines more than punishments. Disciplines are always to draw us closer to the Lord. God will discipline you and I. He tells us very clearly in Scripture. Those whom he loves, he will rebuke and he will discipline. And the key then is to respond in obedience to his discipline, to his rebuke. And all of them in every church, there is a call to be overcomers. To he who overcomes, to the one that overcomes. 
And you'll see it goes in that exhortation to be overcomers, it becomes individual. It's not like to the whole church that overcomes, but to he who overcomes. So I believe there's a very private or personal indictment, rebuke, and promise of rewards for each and every one who hears these words. We'll go through it, and we are going to see very clearly that not all in the church are believers. He said some of them left, and they left because I wanted it to be revealed that they really weren't, weren't of us. You know, lots of people proclaim to be Christians. Lots of people go to churches, and they don't know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. They may know stuff. They may know religious things. They may know spiritual things, but they're not looking at the true message of the gospel that we need to personally accept Jesus Christ and what he did because it's all by him, his work, not our works. And that'll be clear throughout the letters to the churches. And as I said, he reproves and disciplines in verse uh, 19 of chapter 3 to that church in Laodicea. And I find some encouragement in the Laodicean church, as hard as that is to find sometimes. This is the church that says, you're, you're, you're neither hot, neither cold, you're lukewarm, you make me sick, I want to vomit you out. That's a little bit paraphrased, but not much. But he is writing this to his church, admonishing them, because he still cares about the Laodicean church. He wants to draw the Laodicean church back into truth. He wants to draw them to himself. So he didn't write to the Laodicean church and give them zero commendation to say, sorry, I have left your presence. You are no longer my church. He has given the church a chance. And I think that's something that we can receive encouragement from because in a lot of places and a lot of churches, we sometimes in our flesh want to write them off. Um, God may be writing off some of them, but it's certainly not up to us to judge. We see throughout these letters that God loves his church. As I said, even the Laodicean church, even though some of the reprimands are very strong, some of the evil that the churches are into is very evil. Yet God loves his church, and he will protect his church. And that there are promises to all who overcome. Now, those things to me are very obvious truths in these seven letters to the church. But it doesn't take very long for there to be disagreement on some of the things. There's two questions that I want to try to address, and I'm going to try to tell you up front. My perspective is what I'm going to be sharing with you. I will share some of the other perspectives, but I'm going to emphasize what I think it means based on scriptures that I will share with you. But one of the things is, when you read these letters, who are the overcomers? Who are the overcomers? And the second thing would be then with that is, once we figure out who the overcomers are, what are these promises about? There seems to be promises or rewards, whatever word you want to use, for those who overcome. And it's quite, frankly, people don't agree on who the overcomers are. When you look at this as the overcomers, is it a warning against losing your salvation? So I want to get it out there right now so you can disagree with me if you want. I do not believe that it's possible for a true believer to lose their salvation. And I will share the scriptures, some of the scriptures, but I gave you many. 
of why I believe that. But at the same time, you need to know there are people that will give you scriptures supporting their position that say you can lose your salvation. I just disagree with them and still love them and hope they do the same in return. Is the overcomer a title for all believers because of initial faith in Jesus? And I'm going to tell you that that's where I'm going to land, that the overcomer is all true believers, and I'll share why. And you are free to disagree with me. Is an overcomer a special name for those genuine believers because of their ultimate triumph by faith? So there's this special group of believers. All are believers, but there's this special group of believers who are truly the genuine believers who, because they lived holy and righteous lives, get the promises. There's something attractive about that. And the fourth way of looking at it is, is this overcomer issue really just a warning against false professions of faith? That if you have not truly accepted Christ, this is your warning from God. Or is it a challenge to motivate all believers to be very faithful and obedient so that you can receive the rewards? If you listen to all those things, you can go, yeah, maybe some of that could be true. As I said, well-respected students of the Bible, different theologians do not agree. Um, I believe that there is some definite room for disagreement because of different scriptures. But as I said before, really need to discover and study it for yourself and figure out why you believe it, what scriptures you're basing your position on, because reality is there's really only one right answer. The word of God means something, clearly. But there are lots of places where God doesn't get specific and tell us exactly what it means. And you know what? That's okay, because he's God, and we're not. But I do believe sometimes when you hear people talk about the differing positions that people have, they'll say something like this as an excuse why you shouldn't believe this position. Well, until the year 1600, that wasn't even heard of. And to that I'd say, so what? Does God not give new revelation as time goes on? Do we have all the revelation that there is to be known about the Scripture, including the book of Revelation yet? I don't think so. Might we get more? Of course we might. I trust that we will. I pray that we will. But we need to know what the Scripture says as best we can understand it, asking the Holy Spirit to teach us. I believe the truths are there to encourage us and to challenge us both. So I want to start by looking at the overcomer. The term over the comer. There is a word here in the Greek that every single one of you are very, very, very familiar with. Matter of fact, if you're a sports fan of any kind, you see this word splattered all over the place. I'm pretty sure you're going to see it this evening if you watch the Super Bowl somewhere. It's got four letters. It's one of those four-letter words. But it starts with an N. What might it be? Nike. The company Nike. It is. It comes from a Greek word that means conqueror, victor. Man, I think there was some serious thought and maybe some inspiration when they chose that name, Nike. In the Greek, it's pronounced a little different. It's Nike. But the Nike word, the Nike word, it means the primary word in it, and there are different versions of the word, but the primary word is Nike, N-I-K-E. And what it simply means is a 
overcomer, a conquest, one who uh, con- conquers. It means to subdue. It means to overcome. It means to prevail. It means to get the victory. So when we see that word in the scriptures in Revelation, it's used many times in the seven letters, but it's also used in other places in the scripture. And a lot of those other scriptures are, are places in scriptures that those that believe you can lose your salvation because of that word overcomer, if you don't overcome, what's going to happen to you? That's the question. That's why I think it's really important when we see this through these seven letters written to churches that only the overcomers receive these promises. What does it mean to be an overcomer? Because if you believe it means you lose your salvation, you better get real serious about those letters. And even if you don't, you need to be pretty serious about those letters. An overcomer. When you see that word, it presupposes something. It presupposes the fact if the word means conqueror, overcomer, prevailer, victor, it presupposes what? There's a battle. There's a war going on. And we need to understand as Christians that war is going on. It's taking place. Even after salvation, the conflict continues. If you happen to be a Christian in here that's never felt spiritual attack and never has anything go wrong, I am filled with envy and jealousy. And sometimes we have this wrong preconceived idea that we lead people to Christ and what they're really looking for is a panacea, something to make everything seem good and we don't do a very good job of really explaining what it means to become a Christian. It's not a super pill that all of a sudden you have no problems. You don't have to worry anymore because you're never going to sin again. There's never going to be any trials or temptations, and if they are, they're all from the devil. None of that necessarily is true. We need to understand the overcomers, and we need to understand that as Christians, we are still in the conflict, even though we've won. Even though we've won. And the only reason we've won is because it has nothing almost nothing to do with us. It has to do with Jesus. It has to do with God. So when we look at this battle we're in, what is the nature of the battle? You know, one of the things that it's easy for me anyway to slip into is to try to fight this battle in the flesh. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do more. And boy, you know what happens? I get wore out. And it doesn't work. Very good. It certainly doesn't bear eternal fruit. When we look at this, this war that we're in, it's spiritual. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, it, talks a bit, it says this, You were dead in your trespasses and sin, that's before you got saved, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. There is a spirit in the world that we live in. It's a demonic evil spirit. It's made more clear in Ephesians 6, 10 through 14, where it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and have done everything to resist, stand firm. This is important for us to understand the battle that we're in and we're in one. 
Christian or non-Christian, but as a Christian, the battle's already been won by Christ. He has already won the battle. Us fighting in the flesh does no good. We can't fight these spiritual battles, these spiritual enemies in the flesh. God is around and already has defeated him. He has defeated the powers of darkness. He has defeated the devil. He has defeated all these powers and principalities. He has already won the victory. And guess what? If you're in adult Bible class, you've heard, he's already won the victory. So what does that mean? That means we have victory if we walk in it and appropriate it for ourselves. It's there. That's who we are as children of God. So who are the adversaries? Well, the first one is clear from the scriptures we just read. Who is the adversary? Who is, the, who is it that's fighting against us? It's Satan. It's the devil. It's Lucifer. It's whatever you want to call him, but that's who it is. He is one of the primary adversaries. In Ephesians 6.12 that I just read, it tells us that. And in 1 Peter 5.8, it says, Be sober of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he really, really, really likes the taste of Christians. He doesn't need to attack unbelievers. They're already lost. Until they accept Jesus Christ as a personal Savior, he's theirs. He is the prince of this world, and until we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are of the world. We are part of the world. We are in the world. The devil, that roaring lion, is looking to snare Christians in his traps. But he's not the only adversary. The world itself is an adversary. What is the world? It's a system of government that's evil. It's a demonic system that we live in in this world. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I listen to the news or I read something on the Internet or a newspaper and I go, I can't believe this. And then I just take a step back and say, why should I be surprised? It shouldn't surprise any of us what's taking place in the world. It is a world power controlled by the devil, but it is the world, it's the culture that we live in, and it's going to be continuous and nonstop till Jesus comes back. And it is intensifying. Have you noticed? It's intensifying. And as Christians, we are not immune We have not been inoculated from the attacks of the world, but we're safe. It's so much better than an inoculation. It's like we we can live under this covering of the armor of God and the victory of Christ. We are victorious. We just need to remember that and live in it. Walk it out. In John 5, 4, and this scripture in 1 John, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 5, are very significant in the way that I interpret a lot of what we're going to be looking at. In 1 John 5, verse 4, it says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And if you don't understand that correctly, it doesn't mean your faith as much as it means your faith in Jesus Christ. The object of our faith is always the key. How do we overcome the world? Through Christ, believing that the victory has already been won, through him. In John 16, verse 33, it says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In who? If you want to have peace, it comes through Christ. 
It's in Him. He says, in me you will have peace. The war is going on around you. It can terrify you. It can put fear in you. It can cause you to be in despair and hopelessness, oppressed. The enemy will dump all of that on you. But the victory and the peace is found in me. It's in me. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have already overcome the world. He's overcome. He's won. And then there's a third enemy, and that's the flesh. Too often we want to blame everything on the devil or the culture around us, the world. But there is the aspect of our flesh. In Romans seven fourteen, it says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, Paul wrote, sold into bondage to me, to sin. For that which I am doing, I don't understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate because of the flesh. In Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. For whatever is born. And who is the one who is overcome? We look at all these things and we realize that we have to surrender our flesh. There's a reason God says to crucify the flesh. It's an enemy. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the nature of the warfare is spiritual. The adversaries that we're fighting primarily are Satan himself, the government of Satan, Satan that the Bible often refers to as the world, and our flesh. Our flesh. We can crucify the flesh or God wouldn't tell us to crucify the flesh. We are not to be of the flesh. We are not to be of the world. We are to be led by the Spirit that lives and dwells in each one of us, the Holy Spirit. The lusts of the flesh are very, very strong. Amen? We all battle with it constantly. And until you get saved, really, you are a prisoner of your flesh. We could say, how could they do that? It's natural. It's the world. It's the enemy. How could we do that? Because we did not surrender to the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. The victory is there through the Spirit of God. How is the victory provided? I've said it many times already, but we need to understand it is the person and the work of Jesus. And this is where we need to be encouraged. If you're trying in the flesh, you're going to want to give up. You're going to get exhausted physically, emotionally. You know what else is going to happen? Your faith is going to be eroded. We need to realize that the battle belongs to the Lord. And we'll see, yes, we have a role to play in that. But he is the one. He is. The primary message of Scripture is simply Jesus is the overcomer. He came to overcome. Power of sin, power of death. And as the book of Revelation unfolds, we get an even greater picture of this amazing God, this amazing Jesus that we serve. And the victory and the the links he'll go to to win that victory. So I got about half as far as I thought I would. So we're going to stop there. But I want to just encourage us with what we've looked at so far. I, want you, I, I really want to encourage you to read chapters 2 and 3 and look at these churches. Remember, they're individual churches. They existed at the time of the Bible. These are real churches. These were real people. These were real challenges. These were real temptations. And God is coming, Jesus is coming, and he's saying, hey, I know what's going on. However, repent. 
we need to go ahead and do an inspection. Let the Holy Spirit do an inspection in each one of us as individuals as well. God, if there's anything in here, reveal it to me. Because the rewards can come as soon as I confess it and repent. And also realize, and I think we do know this, but I wanted to reiterate, you're in a spiritual war. I'm in a spiritual war. We are, the attack will come from any direction. The enemy's very good at knowing what to attack us with. He knows what areas of our lives we are susceptible to his attack. He knows what areas are strongholds, or to put it in a language we all understand, he knows what buttons to push. He knows what temptations we have a hard time resisting. He knows where the flesh has won many, many times in the past, and he will just keep coming back with that same test and temptation. I believe he cannot steal your salvation. I believe you're truly saved. You don't, you're not going to lose it. But, oh, can he ruin your testimony, your witness? He can steal your hope and your joy. We need to realize we're in a battle. Let's close there. Father, I pray that as we continue into the book of Revelation, that you do reveal it to us. Reveal Jesus. God, reveal Jesus more and more. God, we are already so in awe or should be so in awe of Jesus, but there's so much more to know. God, I am so thankful that you, through Christ, have made a way to adopt us into the family of God, that we belong to you when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We truly are who we sang about this morning. We are your children. And God, I pray you would give us the grace to praise in the midst of the storms, to believe and trust in you in the battles that we're in, that we would continually surrender ourselves to you, knowing that you are able, that you're good, and that you have a plan for each one of our lives. I pray now as we go our separate ways this morning, God, that you would go before us, that we would be ever desiring to hear your voice, that we would be quick to respond in faithfulness and obedience. And Father, I pray that we would truly be able to have those divine appointments where we get to be the hands and the feet and the, and the lips even of Jesus, speaking the truth in love, giving hope to a hopeless people. God, I thank you that you have entrusted us to do your work, to advance the kingdom. Lord, we pray that in all of that, you would receive all the glory and honor. And we pray these things in your Son's name, Jesus. Amen.